0: We are Encountering Silence.
1: Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you.
2: Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world.
0: Dr. Beverly Lanzetta is a theologian, contemplative scholar, interfaith chaplain, and teacher of new traditions of contemplative wisdom. She is the author of numerous books on emerging universal spirituality and new monasticism, including Radical Wisdom: A Feminist Mystical Theology, Emerging Heart: Global Spirituality and the Sacred, 9 Jewels of Night, One Soul's Journey into God, The Monk Within, Embracing a Sacred Way of Life, Foundations in Spiritual Direction, Sharing the Sacred Across Traditions, and most recently, A New Silence, Spiritual Practices and Formation for The Monk Within. Her work is dedicated to a vision of theological openness and spiritual nonviolence and has won praise for its wisdom, eloquence, and mystical insight. Her voice is a significant contribution to what theologian Ursula King has called a feminine mystical way for the 21st century. Dr. Lanzetta is also a vowed monk of peace living in the world who has formed a community of new monks, single, married, partnered, celibate, dedicated to the universal mystical heart and to the spirituality of nonviolence. She mentors people who seek a deeper contemplative commitment and who wish to make personal monastic vows. She has taught theology at Villanova University, Prescott College, and Grinnell College. Dr. Beverly Lanzetta, welcome to Encountering Silence.
3: Thank you. Thank you for that introduction, Carl. It's nice to be here with all of you.
0: So we typically like to begin our conversations by asking our guests, so asking you about your relationship with silence. Has there been a special or particular time in your life when you had a meaningful encounter with silence?
3: Well, I, I, my experience with silence begins in my early childhood because I was uh, spent so much of my life um, out in nature, taking walks, even as a young child, you know, like six, seven, eight, I would always, you know, kind of escape into the woods, spend hours there. Um, And even with my family, um, when they wanted to go out, you know, to like the movies or to dinner, I always wanted to stay home by myself. And (laughs) when I stayed home by myself, I, I used to feel this incredible joy of just this Uh, being in solitude and and not having perceptions around me or judgments or, you know, just the normal life events, not like there was anything in particular going on. I just could feel this infusion of of, uh, a presence. And so um, I think silence was always a part of my life. Um, but it wasn't until, you know, I became older that I began to realize the power of it and the importance of it and the need to, um, create a space for it in the midst of, you know, worldly events and, you know, everything we go through in life, you know, teenagehood, college, you know, uh, you know, work and so forth. Um, but as I think back, into my early years, it, it was my main form of solace, and I always, um, you know, retreated into that place without having a name, without having a way to name what was what was calling me. And I think that that was really very important. Eventually, putting a name on that inner longing that had been present from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I love hearing about that. It, it, the way it sounds to me is a, a sense I felt when I was a child, that sense of belonging I felt in the silence without it becoming a formal thing or a thing that even had to have words to it. And you mentioned that it was helpful for you to begin to to name it and explore it. And I wonder if, what, what role does silence play for you now? as you, you know, as you write about it, as you think about it, as you encounter it in new ways as an adult. And does it play a part of like a daily practice for you, or is it something that you still like to tether to as informal?
3: Well, I I would say all of those things for for one thing, um, my deepest experience of silence is interior, which means that for me, you know, silence is a state of being, it's a state of interior contemplation and it's it's dwells interiorly um and the more that we devote ourselves to the spiritual search the more we devote ourselves to a life of commitment to the divine or whatever word feels right to someone the more to me it feels like i'm pulled into that interiority that centered place and so you know There's there's the silence of, of being in a place of literal silence, right, where there's no one around, it's solitude, it's quiet, we pray, we meditate, and so forth. And then there's also the silence that dwells within us that we carry with us everywhere we go, and that we, as we, I think, mature in the spiritual life, hopefully we become stronger in it so that we're centered in that place of silence and we're not being pulled by every, you know, event in the world around us or every emotional tone or whatever you want to call it, you know, that we're kind of um, being rooted in silence, right? That the roots of our being are being nourished from the deep well of silence within us and that, you um, the more that we give our lives to the pursuit, to what I would say, the passion of longing to live in a divine way, um, in a spiritual way, the more that we pursue that, I think the deeper or the more we're watered, you know, we're nourished by the waters of silence, you know, the roots of our being. So silence is, I mean, I live alone. So silence is a big part of my day. I do a lot of writing, and so silence is very much part of of my writing process. I think of my writing process as very much um, a contemplative practice. And then, of course, there's prayer and meditation, which sometimes is, with interior words, oftentimes silence, but it's... um, it's a very, you know, as, as everyone I'm sure of you know who, who dwell in silence or, or practice silence, silence is a very dynamic place. It's not static. It's not, you know, it's not like um, it's it's a place of great um, creativity in a way or or dynamism, you know, of presence. You know, that's where I feel very happy is when I'm in that in that energy, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, I I really appreciate the answer. And I think this is a nice segue for me because this is the question I was kind of curious in. Because the way you've described this, this is so, so wonderful, so lovely. The the fact of the, the groundspring of silence in us, the fact that from a very young age, you felt this belonging, this sense of quiet, being connected to nature, connected interiorly connected with things and how dynamic it is. It's not boring. It's all this potential. So my question is this, is you just mentioned prayer. When do you recall the time when you realized that that this was a prayer path? Like there was a prayer component to this or there, there was a mystical component? Because I, I asked this question because when I was raised, uh, I was raised Catholic. Um, and practice Catholicism. And it was, no one ever told me about the silent prayer tradition. I did not know about mysticism. I did not, it didn't even come up with the saints or any of that kind of stuff. And then later on, as I went and got my graduate degrees in theology and philosophy, and I started to realize, oh my, oh my, oh my word, there is this entire rich tradition that no one has told me about. And I connected this longing and this belonging and everything you've described with it. So where, yeah. where did that work? How did that work out for you? I guess is what I'm saying. What yeah. does that look like?
3: Well, in some ways very similar because I was raised Catholic and, and you know, the saints and, you know, and would, would take my feelings of longing into the woods with me, but it had no, you know, like connect direct, you know, no connected link to the tradition of Christian mysticism or the contemplative traditions. And actually Um, You know, in my late 20s, when I was 29, I had this life-changing mystical experience, which I've written about many times and can go into if you want. But that was my first, shall I say, beyond myself (laughs) encounter with the profound um, depth and power of silence and transcendence, right, In, in in, in my imminence, in my being. Uh, And after that, between that period and when I went to get my doctorate in Fordham, which is a couple of years, I discovered Thomas Merton, which you would think, how come I didn't know Thomas Merton, right? Well, you know, we didn't, right? I mean, we didn't learn about it in in Sunday school or whatever. So um, it was in reading Merton that I began to, I, I remember reading something about him and going, oh my gosh, I'm a monk, you know? (laughs) I was like I'm a monk what what you know and and so that was when I began the link the you know and then when I went to graduate school I just like this whole cornucopia of the contemplative traditions the mystical traditions I mean people who spoke the language that I intuitively understood and had no way of you know describing to other people You know, it was like I was without a home. I belonged in the silence, but I was without a home in the world around me because I I couldn't find that link. And that was very transformative. You know, that, that just opening that treasure trove of our history, our, you know, our inheritance of the thousands of years of people who have communicated the depth of their interiority and their longing and all of that. that that just changed everything.
0: It's such almost an archetypal journey. For me, I was raised Lutheran, and for me it was reading Evelyn Underhill. A, f- a friend of mine gives me this book, and um, I was like, "Where have you been all my life? You know and and so for others, it's Merton. I'm, assu- I'm assuming there may be others, Teilhard de Chardin, you know, these various kind of gateways in. Mm-hmm. Why do you think this is? Why is the contemplative and mystical so hidden in our, in our religious world? I, and I'm not trying to get us to bash religion. That's not where I wanna go, but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about that.
3: Well, just one, just one backup thing is I, I had a similar experience. My first semester in my, in Fordham, we read Underhill and I had her book, Mysticism, and I was like, the same as you, like, what? <laughs> where, where has she been all these years? Why didn't I have her, you know, why didn't I read her when I was 10? Would have saved me a lot of trouble. <laughs> but, you know, what's interesting, and I don't know if I can totally answer your question, Carl, because I don't I don't think maybe there is a complete answer. But I know from the research I did um, for Radical Wisdom when I, I was studying uh, the medieval women mystics and their articulation of the contemplative life and and how they were suppressed and oppressed and how contemplation itself was suppressed. So that it was um, they really that the inner life, the at least in the Catholic West, let's say at this point, let's just be more specific, right, was the purview of the formal religious. So it was almost like, you know, if you let that out into the public, first of all, we wouldn't have the same power that we had before, because it was, you know, kept within these religious orders and so forth. Uh, But also, I think they, I don't think, you know, people really knew or really thought or believed what I'm talking about now, that all of us have a monastic nature within us, right? And so you know, that these these private inner experiences were perhaps too dangerous to be out in the general public or would be misunderstood. And for example, in the life of Teresa of Avila, she suffers tremendously because she is on a contemplative path. She's teaching a contemplative path and her confessors don't understand it and accuse her of, you know, being from the devil and all these other things. And she finally realizes no this is you know this is from god and i'm i'm not going to back down um so so interestingly some of the texts from the medieval period medieval you know europe europe are very critical of the contemplative life coming out into the world and even claim in some of the texts that it would ruin the academic life it would um, you know, it would it would just somehow be very disruptive, and so I don't I don't really know. I just know that throughout history, the mystical perception has often seen in in as a um, challenge to orthodoxy, and is often you know denigrated, considered her- heretical, and so forth. And I think part of it is that it puts it puts direct connection to God within each person. And it puts that, I don't even want to use the word power because that implies, you know, all these other things, but it it puts the passion and the intention within each person, not within the institutional, and even not within the theology of the institution. Uh, And part of what um, my work right now has been over these many years has been to. How do I want to say it to um, to affirm, to continue to affirm that there is a deep theology in all of us, that it's it is actually pre, I would call it pre traditional, if you want to call it that pre, not pre religious, like you say, like we're putting down religion or something, because there's great beauty and benefit in many of in all of our religious traditions and in our wisdom and so forth. But there's also something deeper. And, you know, and so that I kind of call it like, yeah, a kind of interior theology, an interior path to the divine that is intrinsic in us and within which we can add religious language or whatever, you know, theological language, but it actually predates it or it's more prior, more organic and, um, I feel that a lot of people are touching that now and they they don't quite know how to integrate it with when it diverges from an orthodoxy or when it coincides. And so I think a lot of the mystics on some level had touched that. I don't know, this is my theory of the moment, but
2: (laughs) (laughs) I like it. It also makes sense exactly with what you've described for us today is this this journey of you discovering as a, when you're young, that, that, hey, there's this open belonging, there's this space, this, you know, and again, the words just fail us here, <laughs> but there is this other primal thing here, this first thing, as you were describing, be- before anything else, it it's an antecedent. Yeah, before, right. you, before you start adding any of the other language, or you start educating it, or you start adding a theology, or whatever you're doing to it, and again, not to bash, but just the the moment before right and 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 you're kind of I love I love the way you describe this it's very helpful I think the world needs this work of telling us hey there is this main component I don't know why our culture doesn't talk about but hey did you know that you're silence <laughs> did you know that you're that you swim in silence did you not notice it did you you know like it's like we're not told to notice it and you're kind of, describing that that it's like hey everybody this isn't this isn't just to lock it away somewhere this isn't some elite kind of thing this is what it means to be a human being Uh, or what it means to exist is to have to be in the this circle you're in other circles too words and other things too but this is one of those circles and we're not talking about it and that's what you seem to be I mean, I could be wrong, but that's what it sounds like. What you just said to me,
3: <laughs> no, absolutely. And and what what's interesting about it, the way you describe it, Kevin, is in let's say swimming in silence. The word you use, it the silence is not contentless, right? right? It's it's right. dynamic. It's like right. it it gives us permission to co-create, right? Right to co-create, um, uh, you know, new insight. Or new, you know, new ways of looking at the world that come out of that ocean of silence or whatever, right? Right. And that's where I think it's so dynamic and hopeful that what happens when we go beneath the stories of, uh, let's say, the fall of humanity or being born into sin or karma, whatever, whatever thing we carry with our traditions. What if we go? you know, below that, or, you know, where the root comes up, what happens then? And so in, um, I think it's in the monk within book, I can't remember, but I've given talks before on the, what I call in the beginning, mm. you know, <laughs> like, like that moment of quickening before it's formed. Right. And when we're in that moment of quickening, we are literally co-creating with the presence you know um and so uh, i think it's a very liberating potential um people are are fear it i think at times to go and i think that's why at times the question carl asked that mysticism sometimes through history has been you know considered dangerous but it's also a very liberating potential and um, I think offers great hope for the future.
1: So I want to I move just a little bit of a direction and, and talk about your recent book, A New Silence. And yeah. in that book, you offer a rule of life, which you title A Rule of Living Conduct. Mm-hmm. And I was struck by everything, all the rules on that list, of course. One I really want to focus on or just bring up and, and read is rule number five. Be attuned to the splendor of creation and the gentle web of existence. Celebrate embodiment. Actively work both within yourself and in the world to make the holy manifest. And just each one of those words, I, I mean, we could unpack for an hour. So one I really want to hone in on is, you know, this idea, this notion of embodiment, which I was kind of hearing in that conversation about mysticism, right? Mm-hmm. This this birthing place of the fullness of the encounter, the yeah. fullness of the encounter in our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our spirit. And yeah, first I want to ask what led to you deciding to write a rule of life and how do you envision embodiment as it relates to these things, contemplation, mysticism, et cetera?
3: Well, I, you know, I'll start with your last question first, um, or the last part of your question. I, I think one of the greatest liberations today and what it is this idea, not just the idea, but the experience of the intimacy of divinity and humanity, okay, the, that someone asked me recently in another talk I gave, well, what, you know, what do you think is the meaning of life? And I was like... (laughs) Kind of a big question <laughs> you know. so but what i what i said is is very much i think what you read there which is that to the best of our ability to see the sacred manifested on earth that to me that's what my life i aspire toward i don't say that i do it well or even at all at times but that is my aspiration is to bring you know the holy to bring love of the divine into what i do into what i share with other people and what what the, to me what the world needs desperately and the important to that critically important to that is recognizing the, the importance of our embodiment
0: our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence.
3: People just we still carry, and and maybe I, I'll only speak for the West because I don't, you know, I didn't grow up in the East, but I'm sure there's elements of this in Eastern religions as well. But in the West, we have such a strong mentality of the separation of body and spirit, God, transcendent, humans, imminent, whatever, and then that disparagement that goes on between spirit and matter and all these other, you know, dichotomies. But for me, I take very seriously that you know every love that we share is the divine love in us sharing. Every moment of gentleness is the holiness expressed through us. Humility, compassion, all the all the things that we associate with God or the holy, those are being expressed through us to the extent to the co- extent that we are capable and to the level that which we desire, and so. The transformation of our understanding of embodiment is so critical. And the what I call a the theology of intimacy is so much a part of that, that our task in a way, this to me at this time in history, is to understand the spirituality in everything, right? And so that's part of the a New Silence book is this idea that, you know, our relations with our children, our relations with our partners, with work, You know, what we eat, what we do, you know, all that we, all that is around us is the potential and embodiment, the actual flesh of our bodies are not just matter in a denigrating way, you know, you know, inferior matter. They are actually imbued with spirit and divinity. You know, we are in the movement towards the, you know, I wouldn't even see the perfection. I would say we are in movement toward the wholeness. Of embodying that, so that that's where I that's where I would go with that. And and in terms of the rules of life, I don't know. I just like <laughs> I, I um, one day I actually sat down one day and wrote thirty something rules of life, and then and and partially because I've been teaching for so many years and I had a group of people that wanted that eventually decided to take monastic vows you know and so i every time we'd have a retreat i would i would write something so i one time i wrote a bunch of prayers and liturgies and another time so i thought we need a rule of life here and so I, I, and so then distilled it down to what felt the most accessible to other people and accessible as you know as something and and what i feel in my own heart of what is important I think we desperately need an ordered life you know not a rigid life I don't mean rigid but an ordered life in which we have something to measure ourselves against you know so like okay here's my rule of life how am I doing with it (laughs) or here are the vows I took in in taking monastic vows am I living those
2: what you're saying is so clarifying for me. the The way you articulate this is is so helpful and useful. I, I can't help but think, you know, we we always bring everybody brings their own experience to the table when they're when you're trying to think through things and stuff. And as I'm hearing, we're part of this conversation. I, I'm teaching a class right now, uh, at at the university and uh, with undergrads, and it's a lot of it's a theology class, and we're doing a lot of theology and philosophy and embodiment stuff. And what I hear you is saying and you pushed me here maybe i was going there anywhere but you i'm going to thank you for pushing me here is i i hear the way you are articulating that we need to clarify the language that has been handed to us that, that you know you, you went to say perfection and you're like well i don't mean perfection i mean something like wholeness and and we could probably argue that maybe that's what it, the word originally meant in greek or hebrew or something like telos it gets translated as perfection, but telos actually means more like goal or or, or like going in a particular direction, you know. And it, so it sounds like a wholeness or a growth or something, a path, okay. a process, you know. It's not a perfection, and and uh, it it's kind of it's fascinating to hear you say those kinds of things, and then to say embodiment, you know, to answer Cassidy's question and this rule of life, life and this sense of an embodiment that if we can take something and embody it so it, we imagine it we body it forth you make it real you make mm-hmm. it come into existence you you say yes to the moment and you allow it to flow through you you don't right. you, it's not you but it's not not you either And so can you say yes and and swim and allow and participate and engage and add your voice and add your component, but also allow this other thing? So you're just connecting these dots for me. I don't really even have a question. Other, I guess this is more of a comment of like, thank you for the work, because I think what's so hard is we've adapted or inherited, I should say. Uh, Two thousand years in the West of language that is very dualistic and static and and deadening, and it makes it sound like bodies don't matter, and it makes it sound like other things. When that probably was a really bad <laughs> take <laughs> on this dynamic process that you're uh, you're unpacking for us here.
3: Right. Yeah. That's so. That's so interesting, Kevin. Yeah. I I agree. Um, I mean, the word I use, what, what I think is so important is I talk, talk about it as an unsaying. We need to unsay so much of what has been said and we really need to actually define or redefine what has been said, right? In a way that makes sense for today, you know? And, um, and that that is so important to the future. That, you know, the theology and the, um, and the mystical life has so much to contribute to the world today. But it is so, it, you know, the way religion has been out in the public spirit lately, people are not interested in the language of the spirit or the deep theological thinking that feeds us. Like there's a nourishing that's going on when we speak at these deep levels without unpacking these, you know, or unsaying these thousands of years of impressions, we're not really free. And so, you know, giving ourselves permission to do that is, is so important. But I think like like we talked about earlier, people sometimes are afraid. They're, they get fearful of, you know, unsaying, so to speak. You know? <laughs> But when they understand that well of silence within us, then I think it gives people courage to realize you're not left with nothing. You're, you're actually left with this creative dynamism of, of anything that, that is good and true. It's not like a scary wilderness, let's put it that way.
1: Beverly, I can't help but just reference your words here from your book, A New Silence, when you write, We contain within our heart theism and atheism saying and unsaying at the balance point, we encounter the world from the unity of being. Even when we do not understand oneness or cannot sustain it, we bear it in our beings in bearing the divinity. We hold all that is good and true and beautiful in the circle of love. We want this gift, not just for ourselves, but for all creation. And, uh, Amen to that. That is beautiful, beautiful words.
3: Yeah. Thank you. And I'm glad you read that because when Kevin was talking and he was describing, I was thinking, yes, in the book, I have the word bearing that we embody and bear. We just don't know. Right. We we take it into our bodies and we we, you know, like Kevin was saying, it comes in and it may pass through. But it's more than just intellectual understanding.
2: Right. Here, here's my question. Let's complicate this because, because I need you to, to solve my problems, <laughs> which we all know you're not going to do. But let's, let's put this on the table here. I'm 100 percent. And Cassidy, God bless her for reading that quote, because I needed to hear that today. That's wonderful. And, and thank you for writing those words, Beverly, because they're beautiful. Here's my thing. How I want to be practical. How do we do this? In the sense, like what you just said is absolutely true. But I'm thinking to myself, my I've been uncovering for myself that I want to teach this to the world. I want to be one of the people that helps this and let this get out there. I know that you're doing that work already. How do I do this for people? Like my brother and I have this conversation all the time. You're like, how about the person who's just going to work and just has to pay the bills? And who you know and is not going to have the time to go walk in the woods today, um, because they're really stressed and they're just the way the world is structured. It's just we need liberation on economic levels, social levels, uh, racial levels. There's just so much that quells us and quashes us. How do we? This is a gift. What you said today is totally true, and it's there for all of us. What are what are the ways that we can? Offer it to people, suggest it to people, encourage it, add it into our school curriculums, our family lives. However, it gets out into the water, so that we can unsay, and so that people are aware that this truth is there for them. Uh, how do we? How do we do that? Like I struggle all the time. Of there's a part of me that feels only certain people can do this. It's elitist, and another part of me is like, no, it's not. It really is not. And. But how does, on um, the practical, how do I get it on the ground to these to everybody, to the whole world?
3: Right, right. <laughs> well, I think, you know, that's a very good question. And I think what the first thing that comes to mind, well, two images come to mind for me. One is Teresa of Avila on her ox cart, you know, driving all over Spain <laughs> in the back roads forming monasteries. <laughs> And having followed her route in Spain a couple of years ago, I cannot imagine how she did that. Because even today with regular roads, some of these places are really remote. Okay. So that's the first image that comes to mind. The second that comes to mind to me, because I know the passion you feel for wanting to help and wanting to transform and wanting, you know, everyone to realize that there's other ways of being and the 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 image that comes to me is waiting in prayer and the way what I mean by that is that as from at least in my life as difficult as has been to wait for the signs for for the spirit to guide me in the direction I need to go I have always found that that is more helpful and more authentic than when I try to insert myself into some kind of transformation. And maybe that's because I'm more of an introvert and more of a contemplative. And so that's the route I take. I'm not disparaging anyone who's more of an active, you know, active activist, right? Because they do those people, that type of person does phenomenal work and uh, probably far greater in some ways than, than anything I can do but we all have to be authentic with with where we're being called and so um i've always taken that that other route that i mentioned which is having the sign be shown to me how i have to proceed and and i can say for example that i've been teaching this and writing for almost 40 years and only now are people you know, has my group gone past like 12 people? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I taught in the university, of course, and had a lot of students. But, you know, I think that and, and always in those years, this passion, like you're saying, it totally what you feel is like, well, listen, you know, why aren't more people like, what can I do next? And what, you know, how can I do it? So I think that the first thing is the passion. The second is the true desire that you make, you can make a change. The third is, you know, waiting in prayer for a direction. And four, when you have that direction to follow it through to the best of your ability, like, you know, so many times in my life, I mean, I publish my own books now, because just as an example, I mean, maybe I won't forever, but too many publishers wanted me to rewrite them, make them more commercial do this do that and I was like no I can't I'm sorry (laughs) you know so I started just with some friends of mine who are in the publishing world who do professional work you know I started publishing my own books and not knowing you know whether they would get out there or anything but just well that's where I'm going now because that's where I was being called I think that's so important and I think I think you know our desire and our passion to, to see the world change is not wasted, even if we don't see, we don't think we're seeing tangible results. And, and that's something I've also learned in my life, that there is no aspect of my interior aspiration, my interior desire to see God in my own life and in the lives of other people. Um, to bring people closer to the holy. I don't feel like any of that has been wasted. Even when nothing, quote, I put quote, nothing, <laughs> you know, in quotes, nothing as it seems to be happening on the material level. There's another term I use in a new silence. I'm trying to remember what I called it. Oh, I know worldly ambition. That was it, <laughs> you know, to heal our worldly ambition.
0: I think it's wonderful that you forget worldly ambition. <laughs> I, I see grace written all over.
3: That. <laughs> I it's like, "What's the word?" That's, the word. <laughs>
0: that's great. I really appreciate
2: that, and I, I think the image that strikes me too—all everything you said there is so helpful. But I mean, the image of the ox cart, like you said, that—that's the first thing that pops in your head—is interesting to me. That. What is that image if we unpack that? What is that saying? You know, to kind of go to all those out of the way places, even the places that seem impossible. Just just go. Just go to those places that you feel called to and and she planted seeds, you know? She she started little monasteries and little groups and little organizations and one person here and 10 people there and whatever and in places that seemed impossible to get to. And she went. Right. right. You know.
3: Yeah. And she was in a lot of pain most of her life, a lot of physical pain, but she still went. And I think this, you know, the idea again of healing worldly ambition is just so important in, in the process of the interior life. Because we have so many, I mean, that's one thing we really need to unpack is all those messages of you better accomplish something, you need to be successful. You need to achieve something at the expense of other people. And it just takes away from the humility, from the, the beauty of being alive for its own sake and not because someone is asking you or demanding or you're trying to accomplish something for yourself. Because, I mean, if we're not doing it for the higher purpose, then what are we doing it for? And it's not to say, and I I want to be clear, it's not to say in my earlier life, when I was younger, that I I didn't feel some of these things as well. Not that I, I mean, my path has been such, that even when I felt these things, it never happened. So (laughs) it didn't really matter what the heck I was thinking, because, you know, it's like the force of the universe in me was like, you're not going there. So, you know, you can waste your time thinking about it. (laughs)
2: Now I feel like you're reading my mind that that's the, that's the best. You, yeah, that's great, Kevin. You can waste your time thinking about that, but that's not what you're going to do.
1: <laughs> yeah. Beverly, I love the importance of reminding us that the contemplative way of life is a way of being and not doing. And yeah, that notion, that haunting notion of, you know, ambition, productivity, the way it's tethered to capitalism in our world. In the way it ultimately fails everyone and removes us from that depth of being you were talking about earlier and that deep rootedness and connectivity. So thank you for, for that reminder. And it's amazing how sometimes we lose track of the ways the being is actually more focused on collective care than the doing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could might speak to that a little bit.
3: Well, I think, you know, I, I just feel again using that image of our roots our roots down in the well of silence that interiority is a place of unity it's a place of profound intimacy I'll use the word intimacy or compassion and in that place we bear the suffering of others and the world I mean this is another thing that comes in my feeling about work the idea that being connected to god or the holy means we don't feel suffering that we're so transcendent you know that we're like quiescent you know it's just it's just not my experience of the divine and so i think in that deep well we are sensitive to everything you know to equanimity to balance to a peace but also to suffering and also to you know, to the, the, you know, the disruption of the, of the unity. And so I think that that deep place is not a place of non-action, but it's a place of contemplative action coming out of its own, its own unity. And it's a very different place to, to affect change. And, you know, I think quite misunderstood in the world. And those people who have, Try, who have affected change from that place are often misunderstood um but some of the greatest changes have come from the interior unity so that's i think that's yeah
1: yeah yeah that that well of solidarity mm-hmm. and that you know the meeting place of the true the true place where we actually see and meet each other in all of our fullness um so that our actions to, to bear the pains and the, the challenges of, of the world are fruitful and actually come from a place of, of that deep connectivity.
0: Thank you for that.
3: Yeah, thank you for your, for your insights and questions. Oh, this is a fun conversation. <laughs> oh,
0: I know, I, I'll speak for myself. I'm really loving this as well. And um, I'm, I'm sorry that we're uh, running a little short on time here, but but before we wrap up, uh, Beverly, we love to ask our guests if they have a, a prayer or a song or a poem or anything that they would like to share with our listeners.
3: Yeah, thank you, Carly. Yes, I will. I have written a series of prayers that I call canticles, uh, poem prayers, and this one's called Canticle of Great Silence. In the flowering meadow, anointed by the morning dew. Shyly, as petals turn towards sun, you beckon. Shall I follow great silence? Shall I abandon the noise and the need for the longing within? You know me, I rejoice in solitude. I am sustained by emptiness. Nothing else holds. Why am I not content with the marking of time? Why do I resist the kiss of possession? You beckon, and I cannot say no. You betrothed me, great silence. Now I am never alone. Amen.
0: We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccullman.com.
1: I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com.
2: I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com.
0: Please visit the podcast's website at encounteringsilence.com where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.